Now we're going to look, be looking at several passages of Scripture this evening, not just one, and they will come up on the screen as we go through them. Before we begin to do that, can I just mention a couple of things that you can Google or look on YouTube or whatever? One is from our own congregation. Uh, David Henderson has got a couple of videos up, one of a, a Christmas song that he's written himself and the other um, Silent Night, and they're both beautiful, highly recommended, and you can show them to people and then say, come along next Sunday, and you'll hear more. And then there's a gentleman called Glenn Shrivener who has a kind of mini drama series called Meet the Nativity, which is absolutely superb, and uh, just you go and see them and you'll, you'll see what I mean. And I do encourage you to take every opportunity this Christmas to share the good news. But part of that good news is that Jesus was born of a virgin. And when I said this morning that I was going to do this, um, I thought, you know, people, maybe a lot of Christians, maybe those of you who are Christians, you think, ah, people aren't really interested. I've had three messages already this afternoon from, well, one from a Christian and two from non-Christians saying, are you recording this? Because we'd like to find out more because it's a big objection. The uh, TV uh, pundit Larry King was asked who he would like to interview if he had his pick from all history, and his answer was, I'd like to interview Jesus Christ. And if there was one question you could be given him, what would it be? And he said this, I would ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because, that answer, because the answer to that would define history for me. On the other hand, the late Christopher Hitchens mocked and said the case of the virgin birth is the easiest possible proof that humans were involved in the manufacture of a legend. Jesus makes large claims for his heavenly father, but never mentions that his mother was a virgin and is repeatedly very rude and coarse to her when she makes an appearance. I love that. I just, if you, Hitchens had no idea. But most people will say, don't be ridiculous. And I want us to look at this not just in the sense of an apologetic and saying, well, we're going to defend this, but I, I want us to look, for those of us who are Christians, uh, to see why it's actually important and why it's a wonderful thing. And for those of you who are not Christians, I want you to see why it's important for you as well. Let's look, first of all, at what we do not mean. And that's very, very important. This is something that's been added to. And it's largely, I'm afraid, within the, the Catholic Church where this, there's this idea of what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary not only was a virgin but remained a virgin her whole life. That is not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 1.25, he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. After that, Mary and Joseph lived a normal married life. Mark 6, verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I don't need to give you a biology lesson to say, well, that means that Mary did not remain a virgin for the whole of her life. So when we're talking about the virgin birth, we're really talking about the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ, not uh, so much, uh, certainly the state of Mary for the rest of her life. 
So what does the Bible actually teach? There are two separate accounts. The first one in Matthew 1, verse 18, which we'll read. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. If, by the way, you've ever seen the BBC series on the Nativity, they get this absolutely spot on. It really was. He, you know, an extraordinary thing, and he wanted to divorce her. And this, by the way, is before they're, they're married. They're, you were considered to be engaged to married was to be the, the equivalent of being married. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And then the other account is in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter uh, 1 and at verse 30. And again, um, it's very clear what is being stated. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I always love that verse, by the way, as well, because this is John the Baptist as a baby within the womb, leaping at, for joy. Right, even, even as a baby, he was bearing witness to Jesus. Um, those of you who have been pregnant and the, the bond that you feel and that you have and the, the baby responding to different things and that a, a baby can hear things within the womb. And this is when the Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Uh, as soon, sorry, I'm, I'm reading, I'm gone on a bit, but as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And then to go back into um, verse 30, the Mary was troubled at what had happened. Mary was a, a virgin in the sixth month, verse 26. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The, the angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, 
since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Now, it's very clear what the Bible actually teaches. And yet there are people who will say, well, the Bible doesn't really teach that and it's not emphasized. These are two key gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. And it is the, there's a stress that is made on his conception. Now, there are other things as well. In John chapter uh, 8 and verse 41, it's very interesting that the Pharisees say, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself, and the emphasis is on the illegitimate. And the implication is they're saying, Jesus, you are. We're not. You are. It was, it had, it was well known. Or uh, Paul, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and remember, Paul was a companion of Luke. By the way, um, it's important to remember that Luke was a doctor as well. I mean, he knew how babies were born. Uh, he, he knew what happened. He knew what he was writing. He knew what he was saying. He knew that this was not natural. This was supernatural. Well, Paul, a companion of Luke, many times, he writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. And what's interesting there, why that's got to do with the virgin birth is that Paul uses a particular word which is associated with uh, the woman rather than the husband. And that's unusual because in that context and in that culture, it would normally have been... Um, well, some of you know Andrew is my son, and in that culture, he would be known as the son of David. He's also the son of Annabel, but that's, in that culture, being the son of the father is really important. But Paul is, is doing something very different. He's stressing Mary, the son of Mary. He doesn't say the son of Joseph. He says the son of Mary, and there's a reason for that, as we will see. Genesis 3, verse 15, again, it's important. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And again, it's born of the woman, the seed of the woman. And that's an important thing as well, the, 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 the stress and the importance of the fact that Mary was really Jesus's mother, physically his mother. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It's speaking of the birth of a son to Ahaz, but it's also a prophecy of the birth of Jesus. And there's a great argument made about this refers to young woman and uh, there's a different word as virgin. The 
Septuagint translated it as virgin. But you can go into all the different arguments. The church clearly understood it, and the New Testament understood it as referring to this is a, a young woman who is a virgin. So the Bible, what the Bible actually teaches is very clear. Now, why is it important? It was accepted by all the early church fathers. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, said it's the greatest fact in history. It's important to the gospel writers. It's important to the Holy Spirit to stress it. Some will say, but this just comes from other religions. You can read of Zeus begetting Hercules and Apollo, uh, Pythagoras, and so on. But these all came after Isaiah 7, 14, and these are all, it's not that Christianity has borrowed from the pagan Greek gods, which is the argument that is often used. This is the something that is very different. It's interesting that Islam accepts the virgin birth, um, but Mormons have a very different view, which um, is quite gross, to be honest. But I find it quite fascinating that Islam accepts the virgin birth, which is unlike many Christians. I read this morning from a poem by a non-Christian in The Spectator, but there was a, an article by a Christian who said, well, we can no longer accept myths such as the virgin birth. Rob Bell says that if we've not really lost anything, if we had DNA samples that showed that Joseph was Jesus' real dad. But we have lost something. And for me, I would have lost my faith because the Scripture teaches this. And if I cannot trust the Scripture on this, why can I say I can trust the Scripture on something else? I don't believe that God's Word lies. And it would be a lie. It was telling us something that did not happen. But also, I think, we lose Jesus. Why? Because if a child had been conceived through the act of Joseph and Mary, then he would have been a human being and a human being only. God would not then have become man. What would have had to happen is that the Holy Spirit would have had to attach himself in some way or uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is an amazing way of God becoming man. Mary had a natural birth, which Jesus went through, but it was a virgin conception. In fact, in, in reality, it's more, technically, it's better to speak of a virgin conception than a virgin birth. Now, forgive the detail, but I think this is important. The female ovum contains half of the 46 chromosomes that are in every cell of the human body. I mean, the human body is incredibly wonderfully made, and I realize at this point there are some of you who know me and saying, please don't go into biology because you haven't a clue what you're talking about. And I haven't, but I know this, and I think this is wonderful. When you understand how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So in every cell of our body, there are 46 chromosomes. The male sex cell adds 23 to the female 23. The two cells become one and then to begin to divide and build up a complete mind, body, and spirit. And what is being taught here is, and this is Dr. Luke speaking, 
is that the Holy Spirit fashioned the necessary genes and chromosomes that could be the vehicle of Christ's person in uniting with those of the Virgin Mary. So half, if you like, Jesus' physical body directly comes from Mary, and half is specially created by the Holy Spirit. You don't have a Jesus whose chromosomes come from Joseph and Mary, and you don't have a Jesus for whom every chromosome is directly created by the Holy Spirit. You have this mixture, and that's how we speak of one person and two natures. Now, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of mind-blowing trying to understand what that involves. But it means that all you need to understand is this. Jesus was fully God and fully human. And he's one person. I'm one person. I only have one nature, a human nature. But Jesus didn't. Jesus had two natures. And that's important. Because when we think about the baby in the manger, and when we think about the child in the temple, and when we think about the man on the cross, you cannot think, or you should not think, well, that was just Jesus when he was human, and he stopped being God. The Bible does not teach that Jesus ever stopped being God. He's God who became man. And incidentally, here's the amazing thing. When Jesus ascended to heaven, it was a human being. As a human being, he ascended to heaven. And as Rabbi Duncan puts it now, the dust of the earth sits on the throne of heaven. And that's why this is so important. It is so extraordinary. And, and, and it is so wonderful that someone who has our nature is now... He's the Son of God. He always has been the Son of God, but the Son of God became man. He emptied himself. We can reflect on that a bit, but in terms of the importance of it, Al Mohler puts it really well. He says this, must one believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? It's not a hard question to answer, he says. It's conceivable that someone might come to Christ and trust Christ as Savior without yet learning that the Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. You don't, you, you can become a Christian without knowing that. A new believer is not yet aware of the full structure of Christian truth. The real question is this, can a Christian, once aware of the Bible's teaching, reject the virgin birth? The answer must be no. Carl Henry, a great theologian, argued that the virgin birth is the essential historical indication of the incarnation, bearing not only an analogy to the divine and human natures of the incarnate, but also bringing out the nature, purpose, and bearing of this work of God to salvation. And all that's saying is simply Jesus coming down to earth, Jesus being born, Jesus being conceived and being in the womb of, of Mary and Jesus being physically born and Mary going through all those pains, that that is vital. And sadly, when people stand up and sing Christmas carols, many of which are very explicit in uh, their teaching about this, they stand up and sing Christmas carols, they read the passages, and then they say, well, it didn't really happen, it's just a myth. That's not an incidental thing. That's blasphemy. 
That's taking away from God what God says in his words, and it's taking away from Jesus Christ. We know this. Moller says this. We know that all those who find salvation will be saved by the atoning work of Jesus the Christ, the virgin-born Savior. Anything less than this is just not Christianity, whatever it may call itself. A true Christian will not deny the virgin birth. There are things that Christians will disagree about. There are things that real Christians, we may say, well, we're not sure about this, or we may deny something that someone else thinks is quite important. But this is not one of those issues. This is one of the the key issues. And the reason that most people say that they don't accept it is purely and simply because they don't believe in the supernatural. And if you don't believe in the supernatural, what you're saying is you don't believe that God has the power to do it. And if you don't believe that God had the power to do it, then what you're saying is that the God of the Bible doesn't exist. You're, 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 You're in effect an atheist, even though you say you're a Christian. If you're saying, I don't believe in the virgin birth because that doesn't happen, you're, you're saying, I don't believe in it because God can't do it. Well, the God of the Bible can, and the God of the Bible did. Let me just do a, a couple of other applications. As regards Mary, there's a mistake that's made with Mary. On the one hand, there are people who almost worship Mary. She is the mother of God, and there are people who would say, we pray to Mary in heaven. Well, we don't pray to Mary in heaven. But I think sometimes Protestants go the opposite extreme, where we don't acknowledge how wonderful Mary was and what happened to her. You know, there's no other human being, no other woman, certainly no man, who's able to look at Jesus and say, he's of my flesh. Imagine that. Again, you've got a baby. You, when your child is born and you look at the baby, it's just, it's one, this child, I mean, it's really scary. If you're a parent for the first time, actually for the numerous time, but the first time especially, you're looking at this, I don't mean thing, but you, you know what I mean, this, this thing that's been born and you just, and you're so scared. There's nothing nothing can prepare you for it, but you're also looking and you're going, like, this is ours. This came from us. And Mary, as probably a teenager, is looking at a baby and she sings her Magnificat, her song. That's her Savior. That's her God. Now, don't sentimentalize that too much. It's, I, I, how did that girl cope? How did she, you know, it, it is an amazing testimony of the grace of God that, that Mary was able to consider all these things and ponder all these things in her heart. Someone said this, that Mary is not to be our object of faith, but rather our example of faith in Jesus. She had faith that her son was the son of God. And if you think about how through his life, when Joseph, as we um, know, died at some point when he was young, and then Mary is left as a widow with children and with this child especially, but most of all, I think perhaps 
Mary uh, seeing Jesus being executed on the cross and the confusion of emotions that that must have caused. It's a beautiful song um, that Pentatonic sang called Mary, Did You Know? And she did, actually. She was told. And it, it must have been one of the most extraordinary things for someone to carry around in their heart and head for so long. She was a teenage mother-to-be with all the social disgrace of having an illegitimate child. She would have been relatively poor, maybe overwhelmed by what she'd been shown. But look what she sang, and with this we're going to finish. Luke 1, 46. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. God has come to help the poor. God has come to scatter the proud. God has come to bring down rulers. God has come to fill the hungry with good things. God has helped his servant Israel. How has he done that? He's done it through the virgin birth. He's done it through God becoming incarnate, through Christ becoming incarnate, which is why it is so perverse that people would say, well, we're about helping the poor and we're about filling the hungry with good things, but we don't believe in the virgin birth. It's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. This is how God helps the poor. This is how God scatters the proud. This is how God fills the hungry with good things. So please don't pontificate about the, you know, the teenage mum Mary and how this means we, all, we have to look after teenage mums and how we have to care for the poor. You have to ask, how did God care for the poor? Well, this is what God did. And it's interesting, Andrew will forgive me saying something about Charleston at this point. Far too many Christians, including evangelical Christians, will say when you planned a church and a housing scheme, you know the most important thing is you, you, you've got to be helping people with the material needs, which you do. But sometimes that's incredibly patronizing. What people in Charleston need to hear is, is exactly what people in Proiferi or wherever you live, the West End here, need to hear. And they need to hear about Christ. And it, Christ is the means of hearing. I mean, it's so frustrating because even you get evangelical churches in kind of middle class areas who think, well, we're going to help the poor and what we're going to do is provide financial assistance or different things or clubs or whatever. And all of that is fine, but it's secondary compared to the most important thing that the virgin-born Savior is proclaimed. Mary got it. Mary saw it. Mary grasped it. Mary understood it. And we need to grasp that as well. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. 
Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail, the incarnate deity. The shepherds came and they worshipped. The wise men came and they worshipped. And when we understand and grasp about Christmas, what it means, Jesus being born of a virgin, and then we worship. And I don't think we can worship. I'm sure we cannot worship unless we accept who Jesus is and what God's Word says about Him. So when someone says, I can't believe in a God who would have a virgin birth, I, my simple response is, I can't believe in a God who doesn't. I can't believe in the Jesus who isn't. It is, it is, it is that important. When we go into this Christmas, and I think so much of Christmas is cliched, and it, it's hard for us to grasp. We often sing the, the song, May I Never Lose the Wonder of the Cross, and I think that is more important. The reason that's more important, we know that. The only two of the Gospels give an account of the incarnation of Jesus. All of them spend a considerable amount of time on the death of Jesus. But he was born to die. But the incarnation, may we never lose the wonder of the cross, but also may the incarnation is important. May we never lose the wonder of the incarnation, that the Almighty God, who is beyond our comprehension and understanding, came to earth in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and was born as a real human baby, and yet was also God and remained God. That's where our salvation comes from. And again, I encourage those of us who are Christians to reflect upon that and to seek and to be thankful for it and to wonder at it and to know that the God who did this is the God who will preserve and protect us in all things. And for those of you who are not Christians, this is the Christian good news. Please, as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, came into this world and that you were an embryo, that you were a fetus, that you were a baby in the womb, that you were born. We celebrate and remember that at this time of year. But the most amazing fact is just simply that it happened at all. Thank you that because of your virgin birth and because of your life and your teaching, because you lived in absolute purity, never sinning, never doing anything wrong, you were able to be the ultimate sacrifice, the one true atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we bless you that at this time of year especially, we are able to remember that. Help us, each of us, as we face our own sorrows and pains associated with our own bodies, with our own circumstances, maybe with work, maybe with family, maybe with different things, maybe with spiritual fears and doubts, maybe concerns about death. Lord, grant that each of us would be able to look to the one who so 
loved us, that he gave himself for us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.